big fancy word for sin. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. Well, again, good morning. I'm going to take a minute and go over, if it's okay, I'm just going to use all this space this morning instead of a music stand. But a couple other announcements I just want to follow up on so everybody's on the same page. Uh, One of those being that at the end of every communion service we have, so when we come together and we celebrate and honor what God has done for us on our behalf and to bring glory to himself, at the end of the service, the ushers stand in the back with the offering baskets as a way for you to contribute to what we call the Benevolence Fund. Well, Mike, why are we taking another offering? Well, the Benevolence Fund is unique. If you remember in Acts chapters 2 and 4, when the church was together, they were all of the same mind, meeting each other's needs and giving as all had need, or giving to meet as any needs there were in the body. Well, in a church that's spread all over the world, that gets together every once in a while here on Sundays, we do have needs, and we want to be able to help our church family uh, and their families when there are those times. And so that's what the Benevolent Fund has been created for, uh, to to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, from AIC. So if you would like to contribute to that, you can contribute anytime via your offering envelope, but also at the end of the service on Communion Sundays. So if you're wondering why the ushers are in the back, that's why. Second, it's both a sad and exciting time for us next Sunday. Uh, Next Sunday, Pastor Dan will be preaching his final sermon at AIC. Uh, Hopefully that is not a surprise to you at this point. We're trying not to surprise you as our church family anymore. Um, but Pastor Dan and his wife Gita and their son Lucas are headed back to America, uh, back to Grace College and Seminary, and we're very excited what God has for them. If you would like to bless them, some of you uh, have asked me about that, and, and you can read about it in the bulletin as well, but since next Sunday is their last Sunday and Pastor Dan will be preaching, we'll have a special farewell tea time and fellowship Uh, for them after the church service. So please come ready to love on them, hug them. Don't tell them you wish they wouldn't go. They they know, but we're confident that God has led them and we want to support them in that. But at the same time, if you would like to bless them, feel free to give them a card. If you'd like to put something in the card, that would certainly be appreciated, I'm sure, as you know, moving across the world has many expenses. But by and large, they covet your prayers, and we want to support that as well. The other thing is I have been uh, requested to say, please don't come bringing gifts for Lucas or for Pastor Dan. No toys for Pastor Dan or Gita. Uh, they have limited suitcase allowances. So if you, if you want to bless them, cards are the way to go. You with me? Great. Excellent. So... Last week, we began two weeks in our ongoing study of B, where our posture indicates our position. We're looking at Philippians, and the goal of Philippians is calling us to be like Christ, to be found in him, to be like him, having his mind contentedly following where he is leading. And we're going to cover all that ground. But last week, we talked about this concept of a relational apologetic. How are we going to function in this world when people are different than you and I, and there's plenty to complain about? And I have no doubt you, like me, found plenty this week to complain about. But I introduced to you the idea of the pillow test. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you wake up and the last thing that comes to mind when you go to bed? Did any of you, and if you want to raise your hands, great, but I hope some of you took that to heart. 
And some of you considered asking God, what are my priorities this morning or tonight? I have a confession. Uh, I, uh, and I want to be completely transparent with my church family. Uh, I, uh, I had the late night shift last night for the day of prayer because none of you wanted to be up at three in the morning. I can't imagine why. But uh, about 4.30, when my shift was about over, actually I think my shift was a little before that, I don't remember at that point, I confess that I fell asleep in the middle of my pillow test. So I have failed, but I did my very best. But we are on this journey together. And it's a journey of priorities and what we value in our hearts. And if I were to ask you a question this morning, I'd like you to think just for a second, tell me a few of your favorite things. Now, because I'm the speaker, you're going to have to listen to me say the same things you hear from me often. One, I love my family. They're amazing. They're a lot of fun, uh, and they teach me much, but by and large, they're just cool, and they're my kids and my amazing wife, and I've got this dog that likes me. You know, that's pretty special. But then I also enjoy things like tennis and the great outdoors and reading a good book uh, or too many at one time. So those are some of my favorite things. But what about you? If you sat back and you thought for a second, what are your favorite things in life? Your list might be similar to this. Green meadows, skies full of stars, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Green-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver-white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so bad. Does you really well? Of course he does. You try it. What things do you like? Pussyrillo. Christmas. Bunny rabbit. No school. There you go. (laughs) Apparently, I forgot to edit that slide fully before I put it up there. It's available in stores now. (laughs) If you know anything about me, you will know that that song and that musical is not my favorite thing. In fact, I loathe it like there is no tomorrow. But it gives us a good point of we start thinking about things we enjoy and what does it do to our demeanor? Most of you right now have a smile on your face or your eyes lit up a little bit. 
Well, as we look into Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 7 this morning. I'd like you to see if you can figure out what are Paul's favorite things. And I'd like you to see if you can figure out what we might learn from him as we consider God's word together. So follow along as I read Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 7. And we're going to read a, a significant chunk today because it all flows together. And we'll go Philippians chapter 3, 7 uh, into 4, 1. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of, his, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before now, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Let me read that again. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Lord, as we look at your word today, the promises are great. Your mercies are new every morning and your truths are deep and powerful and they are so applicable to us today. So I pray that you would speak in mighty ways and we would be attentive to what you have to say to us from your word this morning. Amen. So what do you think? What are Paul's favorite things? I don't think it's too confusing to know that Paul's singular goal in life was to know Christ my Lord. And I want to remind you of this idea of the lordship. When someone is lord over you, they rule over you. They have control over how much of your life? All of it. 
if you were a peasant in middle-aged, uh, middle ages of England and Italy and all these areas, the lords and uh, kings and dukes of the land, if, if you weren't one of them, if you were just a peasant, they owned you. You were theirs to do their bidding. Now, if we think of it in Christ Jesus, we are invited to a life of slavery in one sense, to be the servant of the Most High God. But we're told throughout the scriptures that this idea of servitude is one that brings great freedom because in God, we know that we're, we're living the way we've been created to live. And it can be confusing for us at times to think of that. But it goes back to that wonderful illustration of Ikea directions for furniture. Ikea directions for furniture, as I've told you before, are not the simplest thing for a simple mind like me to figure out. So let's say I'm putting together a coffee table. I promise you I will have leftover pieces. But you know who knows exactly how to put that thing together? The guy that made the stupid instruction book. He gets it. He knows and it works. And it would always work because he created it. He didn't just create the instructions. He built it. In the same way, we keep trying to tell God, our creator, we know better than him how to live our lives. And we don't. I'm, I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat it today. We don't know as much as God. And God says, I want you to live lives that are beyond your comprehension. You've just got to have faith in me and trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me is what God is telling us. And he will guide our paths. He will make our paths straight. But what happens is we take detours. You know what a detour is? Drive around Wampo right now. Because of all the construction, you can't go in a straight line in Wampo. You have to take these detours. In fact, if you'll notice the blue sign just outside of our church, somebody took a detour into the blue sign. And that's kind of what happens. Our detours, while they might seem nice and pleasant and even fun for a moment, end in our destruction every time. Because it means we're not going the way God has intended us to go. It's called sin, plain and short. But Paul said, I want to know Christ, my Lord. And since Jesus is our Lord, this is what we've talked about a couple weeks ago, our role as sons and daughters of the Most High God is that we will orient our lives around kingdom priorities, around what brings glory to God. AIC exists. If you wonder, we exist to glorify God by loving Christ, loving one another, and reaching the world. That's our mandate as a church family. And we long to do that. But here's the thing. As we make Christ Lord of our life, we realize that it's hard to complain. It's hard to lament against a perception of wrong because we realize in our perspective of the world, we have wronged Jesus Christ. And yet he forgave us, gave himself for us and rose victoriously over death once for all that we might have the victory and live eternally in perfect relationship with God through the Son empowered by the Spirit. So it's really hard to complain when others offend us. And it's also really hard to feel entitled when we realize the only justice we deserve is that we should have to pay for our sins. 
So it's hard for us to feel entitled when we realize Christ is Lord and he who is perfect, he who knew no sin, the Bible teaches us, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. When we really internalize that, when we order our lives in such a way as Christ is Lord over every part of our lives, we don't get caught up in the entitlement of I deserve this because we realize we don't deserve anything. But God in his great grace and his great justice paid the price on our behalf that we might be sons and daughters of the Most High God, co-heirs, co-inheritors with Jesus. And finally, as we make the Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord of our life, we get away from making ourselves the Lord of our life. We get away from demanding that it be done our way. And we can follow the pattern that Jesus taught us in the most painful experience anyone would ever experience when he cried out to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And I want to pause here for a minute and I want to think about ourselves. And I want to say, would we really say that? Do we really want God's will over our own? Or do we want to make sure we're very clear with God and what we want? Maybe in our prayer times over this day of prayer, we've, we've done just that. We've told God what to do. And you know what? Sometimes he concedes and he allows us to end up with what we ask for. And other times, he says no to our prayers because he knows there's so much greater out there if we would but trust in him. You see, the Lord often protects us from ourself. But this idea of idolatry of ourself, most of us wouldn't say, well, I worship me today. But our choices, they kind of communicate that by how we spend our time. You know, I was telling Melissa last night, it's easy for me to get caught up just watching TV because it's mindless. And I like TV. I like stupid TV shows and I really like sports. But is that the best use of my time? No, it really isn't. Sometimes it's okay to take a break. I'm not anti-television. But there are things on there that are not pure or noble or righteous that I don't need to be putting into my mind. And I don't need to be bringing them into my home. But the minute I do, I've said, okay, Lord, I'm not as concerned about what is pleasing to you right now as I am just being entertained. And what happens is over time, we've kind of become a bit narcissistic, haven't we? You recognize this word? It's a big fancy word for saying we really like ourselves a lot excessive or even erotic interest in oneself and one's physical appearance. Well, Mike, come on. We're not that bad, are we? Well, probably not. But maybe, maybe as a society, we're a little more narcissistic, a little more self-centered than we'd like to think. So I'd like you to listen to a little bit of a soliloquy I wrote last night and see if you can think of it. It goes something like this, if my... There we go. See if this makes sense to you. I want to be LinkedIn so that everyone will love my photos of food instantly. We hang out all the time. 
without ever really being together. And since we're not together, a little birdie can let everyone know what I buy do. Of course, I can let them all know what's up because in this day and age, I need 2,000 friends to know my face and spot if my favorite music comes on. All of those things are ways we let the world know what we care about and what we want. Now, please don't misunderstand. Things like Facebook and things like Skype, Skype's not even up there, Instagram, they can be wonderful tools. But in their most narcissistic moment, you do not need to tweet every 30 seconds what is going on in your life. And, <laughs> and furthermore, and I apologize culturally, but I'm going to say it. I don't need to see pictures of everything you eat. And you don't need to see pictures of everything I eat. But what has happened is we love the feeling of getting that little heart that says somebody liked my photo. Or that little button that says someone else liked my post on Facebook. And I confess, I'm right there with you. I love it when one of those things goes viral. Like I posted a picture of Izzy talking to grandma yesterday and man, like seven people liked it. And I thought, wow, I'm so popular. <laughs> but what we're doing is we're building up ourselves, aren't we? We're saying, look at me, I'm important. But Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Now, these can be positive ways to keep in touch with your family near and far, and I encourage the use of them for positive means. But I think we need a gut check and a pillow check that says, Lord, am I using these tools to bring glory to you or to myself? And that's just the internet. And that's just, you know, oh, that's also text messaging is on, or SMS or whatever it's called is on there as way. But you see, Paul interjects, there's a better way. There's a better way than needing the world to look at us that needs the attention of everybody in this world. Because here's the thing. What can happen, whether it be, and by the way, this has gotten to such a point that they even wrote this song, the selfie song. Have you ever heard it? Please don't. It is awful. But the whole song is, let me take a selfie. Because we want everyone to be liking us. And we begin to think that our identity is wrapped up in what people think of this facade we have posted in the world wide web or in this world of what people think of us in real life. And we begin to make God of what others think of us. False or true, we begin to worship at the God of self. And Paul interjects that there's a better way. He says, our singular ambition is knowing him. What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I'm a firm believer that if the Apostle Paul lived today, he would probably tweet. Here's why. Because that guy wouldn't shut up about Jesus and tweeting would allow him another way to tell people about Jesus. But the thing about Paul is that everything you see from him and read from him, nothing else mattered but the lordship of Christ in every area of his life and bringing him glory and making him known. And I want you to think very carefully 
about who Paul was as Saul. He was not a nobody. Like, let's be realistic. When Peter, a fisherman, a stinky, unclean, lowest on the totem pole fisherman, was chosen to be a disciple of Jesus, he batted way up. That was a huge promotion for him. The apostle Paul, as you read, as he teaches and tells us, was a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained by the great scholar of the day, Gamaliel. The guy had status. He was so significant and so influential and so important and so zealous for his interpretation of God that he talked the Pharisees into letting him go out and persecute those that were the followers of the way. And he had their stamp to do it. So let's think, a student of Gamaliel. Remember, we didn't have fancy universities like HKU or Harvard or Oxford back then. So you studied under expert scholars of the day. And Gamaliel was one of the best. He was pretty high up. And Paul would have been his student. Gamaliel, his rabbi. And therefore, you had to qualify. And so much like going through the... um, what are the exams for high school students called now? They're, yeah, those. What? DSC? DSE, right, right, right. Yeah, but going through that process, but getting the highest marks possible and continuing because to stay a student of Gamaliel, he would have had to basically, by this point, he would have memorized all of the Old Testament. He would have known all of the historical writings of the day. Now, he, he just would have been a scholar in every way. Not only that, but there's wealth and position associated with being this kind of person. And Paul would have had all of that. He was important. He was most likely financially comfortable. He also knew how to make tents, which I don't know when he learned that, but that was a skill that came in handy later on. He had friends in high places. And he says here, What is more? I consider all of that, all of the stuff that makes me important, a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Furthermore, he goes on to saying, everything in this world, the things in this world are like dung. They're like rubbish. They're worthless. Nothing else matters but knowing Christ. That was Paul's rally cry, and it never changed. On the, on the Damascus road, his life was changed, and from then on, while he likely lost his friends, he lost his wealth, he lost control of his life, he went where God led. Do we read Paul complain? This goes back to what we talked about last week, this relational apologetic. No, he's beaten, and what does he do? He thanks God. He's put in prison with Silas, who did become a friend of his. And you know what they did? They sat in prison and thought, woe is me. No, they had the audacity to sing hymns praising God for allowing them to suffer like Jesus did. How dare they? Paul meant it when he said, nothing else matters but knowing Christ. It was his singular ambition. What about us? If you're type A, 
you've probably got a pretty good list of all the things you want to do in your life. If you're a highly organized person, you've got a list every day of this, that, and the other. But at the top of every one of our lists should be knowing Christ and making him known. And everything else filtering through that. Not him being the first priority. That's where it gets interesting here. You've heard me say this before. Christ doesn't invite us to make him our first priority. He invites us to make him our only priority and let every other decision, possession, and relationship in this world filter through him. Let me say that again to make sure you understand. Christ does not invite us to make him our first priority. He calls us to make him our only priority and to let, therefore, everything else filter through him. Because when we do, one, it becomes hard to complain when the situations go difficultly, which they will. I promise, Jesus told us that in this world you will have trouble. But he didn't stop there. He said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You want to talk to me about struggles in your life? And I will always ultimately ask you, well, how's your time with the Lord? Because 99% of the time, I can't fix the problem in your life. But I can point you back to Jesus who can give you the courage and the strength to walk through whatever he sees fit to allow you to walk through. You know that? But often we don't want to. We want the easy fix. And so Paul continues as a thankful and grateful man, which we'll keep seeing. He says that with Christ as our cornerstone, not only do we long to know him, but as whatever is thrown at us in this world, we will press on. We will forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead. And this is interesting. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So how do we press on? Some of you right now are wondering what's next. We're an international church. My favorite and most hated thing about being your pastor is the same thing. I absolutely love that we have people come in from all over the world and I really hate it when I have to say goodbye to you. But I get used to it. That does not make it easier. Next week we say goodbye to Dan, Pastor Dan and Gita. I have known them all 10 years I'm living, I've lived here. In fact, they were some of the first people we met and that will be difficult. But we're citizens of heaven and we will meet again and I look forward to that. But when we go through difficulty and uncertainty, maybe you wonder, you're an expat. You've got family in the Philippines. You've got family north of here in China. You've got family in the UK and Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, in America, wherever you might find them. And you just don't know how much longer they're going to be with us. And you wonder, God, what should I do? I feel like I'm supposed to be here, but they're there. And it's difficult. And here Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on. How do we press on? Well, first, it starts with acknowledging that the devil is a liar. Did you know that? He takes great pleasure in lying to us. And he wants you to believe that the sins and the mistakes and the troubles of your past define who you are now. He doesn't want you to believe that the grace through faith in Jesus Christ 
has transformed you. He does not want you to believe that we have become the righteousness of God when we believed on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He tries everything in his power to get you to believe that the mistakes you have made, the sins you have committed, and some of you will say, but Mike, you don't understand. I did this, this, and this, and this. And you're right. Maybe I don't understand everything you have struggled with in your life. But Jesus does. In fact, we're told later on in the Bible that We don't worship a God who cannot sympathize with us, but he understands what we go through and he provided a way. But you see, Satan wants us to believe that our past defines who we are. And so we begin to wear these shirts that say, I'm a sinner, I'm an adulterer, I'm a liar, I'm addicted to porn, I'm addicted to gluttony and food. I can't stand other people. I'm a gossip. I am critical. I am a pessimist. I have no joy. The list goes on and on and on. And we begin to believe these lies about ourselves. And as we believe these lies about ourselves, you know what happens when we look at other people? We believe them about them too. And it gets us back into the complaint circle. And as we believe the lies about us and about others, we become toxic. Think of it like this, and I apologize in advance, this is disgusting, but have any of you ever had an infection that goes untreated? When an infection goes untreated in your body, it spreads. Cancer is another example of this. When cancer is untreated, it spreads and it kills the body. It does no good the worse it gets. It might start small, but that infection can grow. And as it grows, it takes more of us with it. As you know, I do not always make the best decisions when it comes to my body. And when I was in Bible college, uh, I used to mountain bike a lot. I wasn't married. I had nothing to worry about. So it was all good. I only had to worry about myself, right? And so my friend and I were going mountain biking. And one day I hit a rock or something, whatever, and and I fell off my bike and I slid down to where most of the skin was kind of ripped off. And I'm not going to give all the details, but I, it was pretty gross. But I just took a quick shower like every good 21-year-old does in hopes for the best. But after a couple days, I noticed it looked kind of funny. And it smelled kind of funny. And people didn't really, you know, want to be around me. And I realized very much that I had to do something. I had to go into the shower with some rubbing alcohol <laughs> in a wash rag, and I had to scrub it clean. But you know what happened when it was done? I was clean. I was a new creation. The pus, the stench, the infection was gone. It had been washed clean. Your past is much like my infection. When we give it to Jesus Christ and we lay it at the foot of the cross, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us. That word is hugely important, purify us. Untainted by this world from all unrighteousness. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in Christ we are a new creation? We are righteous. I can look at you and say, not because of what you've done, the Casting Crown song, but because of who Jesus is, you are righteous. And you can stand confidently and strain ahead. 
You don't have to get caught up in the mistakes of the past. You can believe Jesus is who he said he is. And what he's done is he died and rose again victoriously over your sin. And you can live victoriously over that, not believing the lies of the devil. You made mistakes? Yep, we all did. Have we given them to Jesus and said, transform us, refine us, and shape us? Or do we hold on to them saying, God, you don't understand. When we do that, it's back to self-idolization. But here Paul says, we press on and we forget what is behind and we strain toward what is ahead. Well, Mike, how do I strain toward what is ahead? We're an active church and I admire that about many of you. Have any of you ever run either the standard chartered 10, half, or full marathon? Liars, I know some of you have. Are none of you here today? Well, there went that illustration. Okay, let's say I did, which I haven't. Or the trail walker. I know some of you have successfully completed the trail walker. 100 kilometers of sheer insanity. Walking up and down and over the hills, over the mountains and through the, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house, we will go. In so doing, when you get to the end, you know what happens? You get a little burst of energy those last few meters. And you begin to lean forward a little more. And you begin to strain your neck just to hit that ribbon. You might be the thousandth person to cross the line, but you're just going to make sure you beat the one person behind you. Aren't you? We want to know that we're victorious. It's the same in our Christian life. We strain ahead knowing that in Christ Jesus, we are victorious, not in thousandth place. But because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, we win every time. Now, when we idolize ourselves, we have to start over sometimes. But we press on, straining ahead toward Jesus Christ and looking forward to his promises, even... Oh, sorry. Even as we know that this world is going to attack us. And I think this is interesting what he says down toward the end. When you get to verse 19, Paul is promising us that there will be, even among us here in the church, and don't mistake, Paul talked an awful lot about false teachers. There are those that are going to tell us that we should accept everyone, that we should reward everyone for their bold choices. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But you see, the word of God is exclusive. He says there is one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And in so doing, we have to guard ourselves, guard our hearts. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. We're back there, okay? If Christ is Lord of our life, we're going to be able to recognize those in life that sound an awful lot like this. Listen, their destiny is destruction. Look around the world today. We are much better. As much as we say we are a green world, we are destroying far more of the world currently than we are bringing up new. That's just a matter of reality. Now, yeah, we're getting some electric cars and we're planting some trees. That's great. But destruction is all around us. And we see it every day in relationships. We see it every day in politics. We see it every day in interactions one with another. But then they go, Paul goes on and he says, 
their God is their stomach. And that doesn't just mean they like to eat. That means whatever sounds good at the moment, that's what they go for. And that's what society today tells us to do. Go after all of it. Go after whatever makes you happy. And then look at the thing that comes next. Their glory is in their shame. Current events often can teach us a lot about society. And one of the things that I've watched with bated interest has been the the way we as a society globally have responded to the way Bruce Jenner dealt with his shame of being a woman trapped in a man's body. Okay? So that's what he would say. I I was ashamed that I was a woman in a man's body. And so he went through, he had the resources and the money, so he went through and he was put uh, last week on the cover of Vogue as Caitlyn Jenner. And we're not going to get into all the dynamics that go into that, but this is what happens. Their glory is their shame. We have glorified uh, ESPN, my favorite sports network. I, I like a lot of what they do, but they chose him to receive the award, the Arthur Ashe tennis player that broke down racial walls for m- many sportsmen. They gave Caitlyn Jenner the Courage Award. At the expense of the person that came in second was a soldier that had lost their arm and their leg, yet continues to do CrossFit and triathlons and other sports and then speak, um, speak on that behalf. We glory in shame and say, you don't have to be ashamed, you can change. But we've missed the point. We're glorifying sin rather than teaching people the joy of contentedness and who God has made us to be. I so wish that somehow Mr. or Miss Jenner would have listened to the word of Jesus that says, I love you. I have made you fearfully and wonderfully and you are mine. Psalm 100 tells us just that. We are his. We are the sheep of his pasture. But instead, we glory in the shame of this world. And we say, if you don't, if you take a stand against these things, then you are intolerant. And I could go on a rant, and I'm not going to do that today. But what are we called to do in response to a world that is going to be more and more against following Jesus Christ and his exclusive claims? Right here. We stand firm, knowing a few things, that as the times draw near, persecution will increase. Don't forget that point. But as this world becomes more and more darkened by the enticement and the glory of shame and sin and they believe the lies of Satan that we've already talked about, we can stand firm because we know this world isn't all there is. Why? Read verse 20. Our citizenship isn't here. I don't care whether your passport says you're Hong Kong, Malaysia, China, and all those other countries. I know that my passport for all eternity says I'm God's child. And that while this world can get awfully painful, my identity is secure in him. 
and the devil can't snatch me away. That's what Jesus tells me. And what the Bible says, I believe. And so I can stand firm knowing that as bad as things can get here, it is but for a moment. That in the breath of eternity, Jesus is Lord always. And we can stand firm. We can press on with Christ as our cornerstone. You know the song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand? All other ground is sinking sand. But the interesting thing is, I don't want you to be the only ones to know this promise. Neither does God's word. In fact, the great thing about knowing and being secure that we are citizens of heaven is we want to bring other people in. We've got the old American concept of immigration, not the new one, but the old one that says, bring us your tired, bring us your poor, bring us your weak, bring them all and let them bask in the glory of God the Father through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, adopted as sons and daughters of Him. Let their identity be wrapped in Him for all eternity. We are called to make disciples. We're not called to just be confident enough to say, I am His. We are called to say, I'm His and so are you. Would you like to know how to follow Jesus Christ? Would you like Him to change your life? Because we look forward to His return. But while we're here, while we stand firm, while we press on with Jesus as Lord of every ounce of our life, we eagerly wait for him to come back by letting others know the great love and joy that is in following Jesus Christ. You see, when our posture is leaning toward him, our position is secure. We cannot be moved by the threats of the evil one. Jesus, right before he was crucified, his high priestly prayer, he said, Lord, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world. I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. And so for you and I today, I pray that we would be so compelled by Jesus that nothing else would matter. Not our kids, not our family, not our money, not our pleasure, not our stuff, not whatever else it may be, but that we would seek him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in so doing, we would press on. When dark days come, when discouragement comes, we would order our lives such a way not to go ask everyone else, but to seek him and to let him wrap his arms around us and say, I've got you, I will lead you through this. And when the attacks come, we know that a way out has been provided for us. That it might be painful, but there is purpose. And that others can see Christ in us, even if there's suffering. And even if there's joy. May this world see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would be just like your son, that our posture would be focused heavenward, knowing that our position is firmly on you, our solid rock. Amen.